God, we are in awe of your love for us and your grace that you have lavished upon us in your son, Jesus. We thank you for his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you for his teachings that make us wise. And I pray that as we look at Mark, that we would believe these things, accept these things, live in accordance with these things. We do give you thanks for just your incredible self-giving generosity that comes to us first and foremost in Christ, but also in the spirit and in your word and in your people. And um, I pray that we would be edified through our time together and you would be glorified by our conversation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are picking up in Mark chapter 8. And I think we got through verse 26. And uh, one of the things I said in that last little section that where Jesus heals this blind man in Bethsaida is uh, that there is an intentionality behind this kind of two-stage healing that takes place. This is not Jesus lacking power the first go-around. And so he has to try again to get it right the second time. That's not how Jesus' power works. And so there is a reason behind this. And I think that it is uh, put here by Mark intentionally to show us that this sort of half understanding of Jesus is now going to become more clear as Jesus moves closer to Jerusalem and the cross. Um, so Jesus is essentially healing the spiritual blindness of his disciples, helping them see with more clarity that he is God incarnate. And I think chapter 8, verses 11 through chapter 9, verse 13, I think is really kind of a hinge in Mark's gospel. Uh, I think I said this the last time we were together a few weeks ago. You know, the chapters and headings that you find in your Bible were not put there by Mark. The verses were not put there by Mark. So I think if it was up to me, I would probably put ch chapter 8 would be like verses 11 through chapter 9, verse 13, because I think Mark is um, trying to connect the prior miraculous ministry of Jesus with his uh, kind of concluding chapters about the crucifixion of Jesus and these verses come in the middle here to show that Jesus is, in fact, not just the Messiah, but he's actually God himself. Um, and we're going to see that clearly as we get to the transfiguration at the beginning of chapter 9. So let me read verses 27 just through 30. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There's a little phrase here in verse 27. It says that on the way, if you read the Gospels closely, you see Jesus doing a lot of important things on the way. Um which is powerful. We don't leave a whole lot of margin in our lives for things to happen along the way. 
at least I don't, you know, I'm kind of moving from important thing to next important thing. And the stuff in between is, is just the non-important stuff that needs to happen to get from important thing to next important thing. But if you pay attention in the gospels, Jesus does a lot of important things along the way. And this kind of stood out to me because when we were, when I was in Africa, I, I was teaching, but one of the pastors in particular, Daniel, we spent, I spent quite a bit of time with him, but it was always along the way. And so in these long car rides, I was having really good theological conversations with this guy who has very little theological training, but some really powerful theological shaping of his biblical understanding was taking place in the car along the way, um, which is cool. I wasn't going there looking for that, but God was using it. And Jesus takes advantage of these times. So he asked this question, and uh, it's kind of an interesting exercise. Who do people say that I am? Is what Jesus asks in verse 27. And uh, I think we can learn a lot about people today by even asking them this question, right? And, you know, maybe you won't actually sit down and be like, who do you say Jesus is to somebody in your life? But if, if you tease that question out, it's very revealing. I, I'm sure I've told you the story before of my speech teacher in high school who I wanted to give a speech on Jesus and she said that I couldn't because he was a fictional character. I mean, that's that reveals a lot about what that woman, what her worldview was. Uh, and I mean, that is an absolutely crazy position to hold that Jesus is a fictional character. You can debate whether he is the son of God and who the, who the Bible reveals him to believe, but there's no more question about his existence than there is about Alexander the Great or Caesar or you know any of these famous people through history. There's actually more attestation to Christ than many of those folks. Um, but you could see what kind of person my speech teacher is. Who do you say Jesus is? She says, oh, he's a work of fiction. That's an incredible position to hold. Um, and notice that of all the guesses that the people offer here in verse, verses, well, verse 28, there's no report of people saying Jesus is the Messiah, right? So they guess John the Baptist, who he must be risen from the dead because Mark has already reported his execution. Some say Elijah, who would have come uh, back from the dead. I mean, Elijah didn't die, right? He was taken up into heaven. So this would be him kind of coming back in the flesh or one of the other prophets. But nobody is saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's kind of fascinating to me. Um, but Peter nails it. He knows that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 29, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. I'm guessing everybody in this room knows this, but you, know, you do know that Jesus' first name is Jesus and his last name is not Christ. I, I mean, it sounds like a silly thing, but there are some times when I'm explaining this to new believers and they're like, oh, I thought Christ was like his last name. No, that's a title. <laughs> Right? It, it is the Messiah. It's the anointed one. And so Peter gets this. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And for all of his obvious faults, Peter really is a man of faith. And he's exemplary in this way. And uh, it's kind of funny how Mark allows Peter to get a little bit of praise here. And then in the very next pericope, the next chunk of verses, we're going to get him being rebuked by Jesus. Um, but it's no wonder that Jesus uses Peter's faith as an object lesson, okay? So if you, if you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 16 real quick, uh, we find this parallel scene. And um, 
in verse 18. Well, let me just read 13 through uh, 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, so Peter use, or sorry, Jesus uses Peter's faith as an object lesson about how the church will be built. Now, the Catholics say that this verse shows that Peter is the head of the church and that every uh, pope, you know, is a descendant of like Peter's authority in the church. I, I think that's bogus. I think that's a terrible misreading of the text. I think what Jesus is doing is using Peter's faith as an object lesson. What will build the church? It is faith in Christ as exemplified by Peter in this object lesson. That's how I understand that passage. Um, and, and even before Peter fully understands what he's professing, he believes this. Um, and so I think this is an a, a picture of exemplary faith. But I also think we need to show, I need to point out that I, I think Peter's zeal lacks knowledge. So Mark records him as saying, you are the Christ. Matthew adds this little additional piece of information uh, in verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I think Peter understands that Jesus is the Messiah, but I don't think that, G that Peter understands that Jesus is God. Okay, I think even the phrase son of God, you know, Adam is called the son of God. Um, Israel is called God's son in general. So I think Peter probably has that kind of meaning in mind. I don't think he understands that Jesus is the, the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is a member of the Godhead. Um, so, but the point is that I think even as much as Peter is professing that he knows that Christ, Jesus is the Christ, he still has much to learn about who Jesus is, uh, which is why he's going to see Christ in his glory in the transfiguration in the next chapter. Anybody else have a different view on that you want to share? I wanted to ask you about the Matthew passage. You know, it seems like you mentioned the, there's two views, and you mentioned one that it's it's Peter that he's building his church on, and it seems like the other people take this, the view that it's the statement that Peter said that the church will be built on or whatever. But why can't it be Peter but not exclusively? You know, I, I've never understood why that's like never brought out with commentators. It's like he could say the same thing to Paul, you know, on you, you I'm going to build my church, and on you, like it, it's not exclusive. No, not I agree with that. I agree with that. I and why I never hear that. Though, you know, like I've read tons of commentaries. Really? Yeah. You've heard that view, or I, 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 I'm to be totally honest with you, I didn't read a commentary about any of this. I didn't even know that there were like two official views. Um, I, I would be willing to bet there's probably some other nuances to the views. I think Jesus is saying, yeah, Peter, like you're the dude who's going to be the founding guy. We see that in Acts chapter 2. But I, I think that 
when the Catholic Church is arguing, like, look, we have this secession of popes that goes all the way back to Peter, which is a straight up lie. If you know church history, at various points, there's like three popes, you know, they're competing. I'm sure Peter was ever even in Rome. Yeah, that's also another really good point. But, so, but I think that what Jesus is ultimately drawing out is not this idea that a particular person is the founding of the church, but that the church is built on faith in Christ, right? But yeah, certainly Peter is instrumental in that beginning. He literally is the dude. It, when, when Pentecost happens and the Spirit comes, he's the guy who stands up. So I think there's some literal meaning to that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I also think of that verse in Corinthians that says, you know, everybody has to build on Christ, but there's lots of builders. So Christ used a lot of people to build his church. Yeah, yeah. And um, isn't Peter listed in the three that are pillars of the church, or is it Peter who writes that about Paul and James and John? It might be Peter who writes it. Yeah, the point is, there are clearly some pillars to the church. Like, even go to Revelation... And you have the names of the 12 apostles in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. So, um, yeah, I think there is a literal meaning there. It's just not the one that the Catholics have. Um, good question. If it gets cold in here, somebody can, can shut the door. They clean the desks with vinegar, and so it just burns my eyeballs when I first walk in here. So I open the door. Um... Yeah, let me just say again that I think when Peter says that you are the Christ, he he's showing great faith, but I don't think he yet comprehends the fullness of what that actually means. Um, and of course, in Matthew's account, Jesus credits not Peter for his great wisdom and understanding. Who does Matthew credit? Or who does Jesus in Matthew's account give credit to? Right? God the Father in heaven who has revealed this to Peter. Um, and look, different people debate this, but my position on this is that there can be no faith apart from God giving you faith. Um, and I would go to, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I mean, if, let, let's, let's, let me knock out the, the more um, typical one first. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift. I think that the Greek grammar, the construction of the Greek grammar there, is inclusive of both faith and grace as the gift. Okay, Greek has a way to be more clear, to connect just grace to the gift, and it doesn't do that. It, it, it uh, I think, intentionally leaves open both the grace and the faith as the gift. Okay, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think, is kind of instructive on this. And I might be preaching to the choir here, but it's worth reviewing. Man, one of the things that was just interesting in Africa is... Um, I, was, I was teaching for like four to five hours a day, but I would open up time for questions and uh, like every question they asked me I went straight to a passage of the scripture to be like well here's how we would answer that question and their minds were just blown by that and I'm not saying that to be like oh Grady's so special that's just not how it's done there like people give their opinions on things and you know 
they were just blown away to see how thoroughly the Bible lays out like church leadership and church practice and how these things should be done. Um, you know, even something as simple as like somebody asking me a question like, well, I've got a guy in my church who, you know, he just wants to keep, you know, taking taking the generosity of the church and not like working. I'm like, well, there's a verse for that. Like, let's go to the one where Paul says, if somebody's unwilling to work, then he should be unwilling to eat or unable to eat. Like. It just was interesting that they were so surprised by that. Okay, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, who do you expect to understand deep and wise things, right? It's rulers, it's the educated, it's the people who have power and knowledge. But they didn't understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I mean, I think one of the implications of these verses is that unless God reveals these things to you, you cannot understand them. Um, and so Jesus does not credit Peter for this knowledge that he has, but he credits God for revealing it to Peter. And I think this is really important because um, I guess we could have a conversation about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism, if you want my honest opinion, which maybe you don't, but I'll give it to you anyway. Semi-Pelagianism is Arminianism. Right? Like, you bring to the relationship with God the faith that is yours, that you choose, that God then responds to and gives you grace. That's a work of righteousness, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so I think faith itself is a gift, just like grace. Otherwise, it would be a work that we could attribute to ourselves and say, look what I've done. I brought this faith. I believed in Jesus. I came to see him as the Son of God. And, um, and then we would be at least partial agents in our own salvation. Question for you. Do you think then that an uh, unbeliever can do no righteous thing? Because in my mind, you just have to do one unrighteous thing to not be, to need a savior. And so, like to say it's a work of righteousness means, and maybe you believe that, and I don't know, it is that you can never do anything good. Like everything you do needs a savior. And I'm saying, I think unbelievers can do things that need no repentance. 
I would agree with that. I, I think there, like I believe in total depravity, but I don't think that's what total depravity means. Right. Total depravity, and this is widely misrepresented, that total depravity means that you can do nothing at all that ever pleases God. That's not what the Bible teaches. I think a right definition of total depravity is there's nothing in you in which you could do of your own that would merit God's approval of you in all things, right? So to be totally depraved just means that you can't bring anything to the relationship with God that would obligate him to accept you. But I think there are plenty of things that non-believers can do that are pleasing in the sight of God. Um, well, then why couldn't have faith be one of them? It, obviously, they need to have faith to be saved. I mean, because they cannot come to the understanding that Jesus is the Son of God whose blood was shed for the atonement of your sins, apart from God saying, this is what you must believe, apart from God revealing it to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, because that's that's what's required. I mean, that, yeah, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. That only comes through faith in Christ. And I think you can only have the faith if God allows you to perceive who Jesus is. And that brings us to the all-important question that Jesus asks in Mark. Uh, let me get back there. Chapter 8, what is it, verse 37? Um, sorry, verse 29. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, I would say that even though only God can open somebody's eyes to understand who Jesus is, this is a question that we still must put before people. Who do you say that Jesus is? God is the agent of faith, and yet... We must still believe. We are responsible before God for how we answer this question. Um, and that's a mystery that I don't presume to understand how that works, but God is God and he can do whatever he wants. And uh, we are responsible before him for our response to Christ. And I think if we're going to share the gospel rightly, so I have big problems with the, the modern sharing the faith movement um, because a lot of it is contrived and man-made. Um, we're trying to gin up responses. In fact, I can't remember where I saw this, but there was some video of some evangelist church growth movement. It was probably 30 or 40 years old, but it's this video of him teaching people how to share the gospel. And at one point, he puts his hand on the person. And, and this is, you know, a, um, what would you call it? Like a role-playing. He's like role-playing with this guy. But he's teaching these people in the room. And he says, I, I put my hand right here on his shoulder, right on this pressure point right here. And, and, and that's right when I ask him, now, who do you say Jesus is? And I just put, I put a little bit of pressure right there so that he knows how he's supposed to respond to my question, right? Well, that's not a work of the Spirit. That's a work of man. And, and, and I repudiate that. I reject that. Like, I think this idea of, like, let's say the sinner's prayer together. You know, I'm going to give you this tract and tell you about Jesus. And now let's pray this prayer and you're in the kingdom of God. 
I do think sometimes that works because that's what the spirit wills. But I don't think that we can assume that every time, you know, we pray the sinner's prayer with somebody, that that means that they're going to enter the kingdom of God. That's not something that we have power over. And yet, I will say, I do think that it is very important to bring people to a moment of decision. Okay? What that looks like is, is going to be different in every situation. But I think if we're really going to share Jesus, then we need to eventually get to this question. Who do you say that this man is? Um, because we need to help them understand that there is a division, right? There are those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are not. And we're going to see that even more clearly as we keep reading verses 31 through 38. Um, but people need to either embrace the truth that Jesus is who he says he is or understand that they are rejecting him. Um, and I think that we need to be bold and courageous to present people with this question and then help people reason through the consequences, right? If you say that Jesus is not the Son of God, then how do you reconcile all of the things that he taught and did? Um, and I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis's Liar, Lunatic, or Lord is helpful in that. Have you guys heard that before? Um, many, it's worth revisiting. So if you're familiar with it, forgive me, but I'm going to cover it real quick. You know, many people love Jesus. Like, Jesus is my homeboy. He's a nice teacher. He's a good dude. He's a, he's a, he's a Gandhi-like example of good conduct. But C.S. Lewis has this really thoughtful exercise where he says, okay, if we accept that Jesus is a good teacher, then we've got some problems. The first one is a good teacher who makes himself on equal plane with God is not good. He's... Yeah, if he's not actually God, then he's a liar, and he's a liar on the most massive scale that you could possibly be, which makes him not good, but evil. Or he's crazy, um, but it's tough to imagine a crazy man who goes to the extreme that he does. Or, or sorry, that's actually for the liar. The liar who would go to the extreme that he did to be crucified, right? Most people would, as the nails are about to be driven in, say, just kidding. The lunatic piece is how do you get a guy who is so crazy as to think he's God who also teaches such brilliantly wonderful ethics, right? Or the final conclusion is he's actually who he says he is. Um, and I think, I think we need to help people understand this. Um, you know, if Jesus is God, then he's the Messiah and that changes everything. He actually died. He actually rose from the dead. The rules have been re rewritten as a result of that. I mean, the rules concerning life and death and, you know, everything changes. Anyway, we can, we can move on. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, I guess the big point I'm trying to drive at is that I think Jesus brings his disciples to face this question. Who do you say that I am? And that's an important question. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Let's read uh, 31 through 38. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Man. I was just haunted yesterday by this. I, I, I don't know, I was kind of like in, in just a funk and I ended up pulling a Soren Kierkegaard book off my shelf called The Sickness Unto Death. And in that book he has this quote where he says, <clears throat> this is not verbatim, but he says something along the lines of, it's amazing how quietly the human can lose his soul. Because any other kind of loss is felt so deeply. You lose an arm, you feel it. You lose a job, you feel it. You lose $5, you feel it. You lose your marriage, you feel it. But you can just quietly, indistinctly lose your soul and you don't even realize it's happening. And I read that and then I pulled this up to do a little bit more study in Mark and I just was like, man, verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? And I just was haunted by the fact that so many people, like it was just a series of events over like two days. We ended up, we're having some family pictures done today and we were gonna go get a couple of new clothes for the photo. And here we are in line at JCPenney and there's just people and it's Black Friday and like, just doing these meaningless, utterly meaningless things, and they don't even think twice about it. And you have a soul that is of infinite worth, and yet people don't even think about it. All right, sorry, this is like stream of consciousness. This isn't in my notes, so let's come back to the notes. Um, verse 31, Mark tells us that this is a new teaching. Right? Because he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Mark has not made any reference to this kind of teaching before. Jesus has taught about the kingdom of God, and he's healed people, and he's, he's even taught about kind of vaguely the Son of Man. But this idea that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed, that is a new bit of information for the disciples. Certainly not what they were expecting. Um, you know, you wonder if Jesus had said when he met them, come follow me and just a sneak peek, the son of man who you're allying yourself to, he's gonna suffer and be rejected and die. I wonder how many of these men would have been like, sign me up. They knew, or at least now we're beginning to see Peter at least, and I, probably the other disciples as well, they knew that they had aligned themselves with the Messiah. They knew something incredible was going on here. 
But if this was the Messiah, then in their mind, they would have had the more popular view of the Messiah, who is a Davidic-like king, right? This is a man who's going to come and conquer. He's going to cast Rome out. He's going to reestablish the throne of David. He's going to usher in a new golden age for the nation of Israel. That's the kind of guy that, yes, sign me up. I'll follow that dude, right? And now, oh, and, and I would say, I would add to that, they, they, I think they would have assumed that uh, Jesus would have received the full embrace of the religious leaders, right? If he's the new David, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they all would have been like, yes, we're behind this guy over here. Um, but to their shock and disappointment, Jesus now begins to reveal to them more clearly the full scope, the full truth of his ministry. And his work and his mission is not to set up a kingdom of this world, but to be rejected and to suffer and to die at the hands of his very own people. And through that, then accomplish the will of God in establishing the kingdom of God. And, of course, they had missed Isaiah 53. Right? Should we read that? I think we should. This is an important Old Testament picture of the Messiah. The suffering servant... Um, yeah, and I guess we could go back to chapter 52 and start in verse 13, but let's just pick up in uh, 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right? Jesus said that he would suffer many things. Uh, and, and, and Sorry, verse 3. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Um, yeah, I don't think that the disciples were super excited to associate Jesus with those verses. And so Jesus is giving them a clearer picture, not only of who he is, but of his ministry. And, uh, you know, verse 32 says that Jesus said this plainly. Let's unpack that a little bit more. But I do want to also point out that at the end of verse 32, he does give the good news, which is that although, you know, suffering and rejection and ultimately death are on the horizon for the Messiah, that after that comes the resurrection, right? So Jesus is giving them the hope at the end of the the struggle. Um, but I don't think that they accept that either. Um, and even though Jesus has at this point raised the girl from the dead to show that he has the power over death, uh, I still don't think they get it, right? Um, but he says this plainly, verse 32. Mark wants us to understand, if, if you remember through Mark, Jesus, or I mean through all the Gospels, Jesus is veiling so much of his teaching, right? I mean, he literally even says, I teach in parables so that hearing they will not hear and seeing they will not see. I give these things in a teaching that is veiled so that people will not understand. Um, and yet when it comes to this teaching... There's no parable, right? Jesus is not trying to be vague or mysterious here. He is very clearly telling them exactly what's going to happen so that there's no room for misunderstanding on this point. Now, the disciples may reject the message, but they cannot misunderstand it. And I think that distinction is important. You know, maybe they might be able to say, I don't understand these other parable teachings. They're kind of unclear. I misunderstood them. But this teaching is so plain. There's no room for misunderstanding. And this is a hard teaching. It was a hard teaching for the disciples. I think it's a hard teaching for us today. And, and I'm going to mention this in, before my sermon as I just talk a little bit about Africa. You know what kind of gospel is rampant in, in Kenya? The prosperity gospel. Right? This gospel that God wants to bless you and he's, you know, Santa Claus in heaven and he's your divine vending machine. You just put in, put in a little bit of your own stuff and he'll give you back whatever you want. Um, and uh, this message, right, that, that, that this man who is God came to live and suffer and die and be rejected. And why don't you follow him? is uh, not widely accepted. It is a difficult teaching. And I think it's nearly impossible for us to grasp just how shocking this teaching must have appeared to the disciples when they first heard it. I think they assumed they were on the winning team. And I think they were feeling pretty good about themselves because like of all the people that Jesus could have picked, he picked them. 
and they get to follow this guy. And at one point, he even he even gives to them power to send them out to do the same kinds of things that he was doing. After all that they'd seen and done, I think Jesus was appearing almost invincible to them. And now, all of a sudden, he's saying, guys, just so you know where this is headed, it's, it's headed to my rejection and death. And it gets even worse for them because they had now wrapped their identity up in this man, right? I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, recently I heard about one of these cryptocurrency exchanges, like going belly up and tons of people losing all of their money, like in the, the last couple of weeks. It's sort of like that, right? Jesus, we were all in with you. We thought for sure that this was a, a deal that was gonna turn out for our benefit. And yet, um, now that they're all in to follow him, this new information definitely changes the kind of return on investment they're expecting to receive. And then we get to Peter, who just knocked it out of the park by rightly seeing Jesus as the Christ, and now he's going to fall flat on his face. And you have to love Peter, because he's so much like us, isn't he? You know, just going from kind of like mountaintop to the valley of or the bottom of the valley and I mean he just has these high highs and these low lows and um, I think a lot of people probably resonate with Peter in that he shows this incredible faith in God where he see he says Jesus you are the Christ and now he shows no faith in God because the Messiah can't possibly, you can't possibly accomplish the Father's plans for you by going down that road, Jesus. No way. And he goes from being praised by Jesus, Matthew records that, Mark doesn't record that. Um, but in Matthew, we see that in this scene, he is praised by Jesus, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And now he's going to be rebuked by Jesus. Verse 33, get behind me, Satan. And uh, what did Peter's, right? It says in verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. What did that rebuke sound like? Jesus, if you want to have a really successful ministry, don't talk like this. Nobody's going to want to follow you, right? I mean, look at all these people. You're beginning to get the crowds. But if you say this kind of thing, they're going to leave. Uh, or Jesus, like, haven't you read the Old Testament? Don't you know that the son of David is a conqueror? Like, where are you getting your information from? Stop this nonsense. Or Jesus, you know, I know you're a really good teacher. You've been right up to this point. But I think I need to correct you here because you're wrong now. Obviously, we don't know what that rebuke looked like, but... It's a, it's a funny exercise to think about what Peter might have said to correct Jesus here. And Peter is the one who has the courage to say it. But I'm sure all the other apostles are thinking it. And we see Peter uh, do this privately. He pulls Jesus aside, I think is kind of the implication of the text here. Um... What does it say? Uh, no, my notes are a mess. I'm sorry. Matthew says what Peter says. Read it for me. He says, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. There you go. 
oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. I think what Peter really means is, no, no, Lord, if that happens to you, then what about me, <laughs> right? I, I think that's kind of Peter, what he's thinking too, when Jesus is washing his feet. You know, I, I've heard sermons about the humility of Peter, where he's saying, Jesus, don't wash my feet. And I don't think that's what's going on in, with Peter at all. I think he's thinking, oh, crud, if this guy's the boss and he's watching my feet, then where does that put me, even lower than him? I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> um, I don't know. I could be wrong. But uh, but it, it appears as if Peter rebukes Jesus privately, right? Uh, it says in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Um, but I think the implication of verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me. I think the implication of that verse is Jesus rebukes Peter publicly. Um, and that's an interesting distinction in my mind because Jesus has every right to rebuke this man publicly. And I think Peter is trying to help Jesus save face Right? I don't want to embarrass you, Jesus. You're kind of my guy here. So, like, I'll pull you aside and kind of correct you privately. And I think Jesus is like, in front of all these people, Peter, I'm going to put you in your place because you're out of line here. I don't know. Does anybody see that differently? Okay, well, then uh, we have this the, the rebuke that Jesus says in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I don't think that Jesus is literally calling Peter Satan. I, I don't even think that Jesus is saying here that Peter is like possessed by Satan or something like that. I don't think the I don't think that I'm not sure that Satan is actually really involved here, okay? Now, that's a possibility, and I leave room for that possibility. Maybe that's the position you would take. I'm fine with that. I think that Jesus is simply rebuking Peter because Peter is standing against the will of God for the Messiah. And if we look at, like, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, Peter's words are essentially anti-Christ. And I think that's what what Jesus is ultimately rebuking. First John chapter four, verses two through six says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So Jesus says there, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And, uh, I mean, does it really matter either way? Probably not. There's, there is a right... There's clearly a truth that took place in this moment. I guess my point is just that I don't think that the text is trying to show us that Peter was like, you know, being ruled by Satan so much as just this is the mindset that is anti-Christ. 
Anybody have other thoughts on that? Well, it brings up another kind of interesting point here, which is just that there is no middle ground. <laughs> you know, the words of Jesus are quite shocking here. Um, he doesn't say to Peter, oh, you poor innocent man. You know, he says, get behind me, Satan. Like, either you are on this team and you embrace God's plan for the Messiah and you are committed to it, or you're in opposition to it. Um, which is kind of interesting because we're going to deal with this in more detail later in chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. But either you're with Christ or you oppose him. I, I don't think most people understand this either. I think that many people think that there's some kind of neutral ground where you're okay uh, not taking sides. But that's not how this works. Either you stand with Jesus or you oppose him. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. And there's no other position. Which if people could really see that more clearly, I think they would, I, I would hope they would feel a weightier burden for their position before God. But maybe not. Romans chapter 1 says, man... Man does know these things, but he suppresses the truth. I don't really have much perspective on that because, like, I, I can't remember a time in my life like not loving Jesus. But for for people who came to faith later, like you, how old were you when you? As you reflect back on your life before that, like, do you think that you had some kind of under spiritual understanding of? I think I was like Romans. I knew there was a God. I, I couldn't deny that. But like our relation says, I was born. God hates born. You know, I wouldn't say there is no God because I knew better. But I wasn't following him. I wasn't hot. So that's a bad place to be. God, Christ says, I'll spit you out of my mouth if you're born, you know. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm prone to look at this very black and white just because that's what Romans 1 says. Like the man knows, but he denies. Right. The problem is not ignorance. But sometimes when I say that to people, they're like, well, you've been a follower of Jesus your whole life. Like, you don't know. I'm like, well, I can't argue with what the Bible teaches, but I don't have any kind of personal experience one way or the other. You deny I just... with your actions. Right. Like, so. your, your lifestyle denies. You may say with your mouth, like, oh, yeah, I believe there is a God, but your actions don't, don't show that. Yeah. That's exactly how I would say it. Like, you're saying, so I'm not double-tongued. I didn't, you know, I knew there was a God, but I didn't care. Yeah. You know, I would never deny it. It, it was obvious that there was a creator, you know. Um, and, yeah, yeah, keep going if you want. Well, I, I mean, I think even like the, the most hardened atheists, like I have a hard time believing that what they say is different than what Romans 1 teaches. And that's just because of my my perspective on the Bible is being They're true. Lying. What's that? They're lying. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think I think it's obvious. Um but no go ahead I was just gonna say but I've had people say to me basically you're too black and white on that and I'm like well I think I'm just saying what Rev or what Romans 1 says but yeah what were you gonna say um, no I was thinking as, as we were talking or as you were talking about um, the son of man must suffer many things um, and be rejected or why not uh, even as I think as Christians were to emulate or be followers of Christ, and there may be situations where we suffer, 
right? And people come up, come and be like, oh no, that is not meant to, for you, so you should go ahead. Like for example, as a married woman, yeah, you know, my husband may do things against me, and some thinking that they're telling me good things, be like, oh, God doesn't mean for you to go through that, so you need to leave your husband now. And that's not biblical, that yeah. goes against what Christ says. Yeah. So I'll be like, go behind me, Satan, you know, like, don't. Yeah. Because I want to do that is even if I must suffer, it's going to be okay at the end. Yeah. Yes, right. absolutely. A amen. I mean, again, that's a hard teaching. It is a hard teaching, but it's biblical. Yeah. The same goes with maybe as a mom, like if, with my children. If my children were to go through uh, like difficult circumstances, whatever the case is where we put our love towards, our, our, our attention maybe, and for some reason God allows for things to happen and it's like, okay, how am I going to glorify God at this moment? Like yeah. It's always a question. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. That, yeah. that goes full circle back to how you opened with along the way. These are the things God's doing right now. Yeah. And, and are, we, are we paying attention to that? Big picture, we already know. We are, we're more than conquerors. We yeah. survive. We get through the things. We'll have a, you know, the marriage thing. We'll be gone. You know, like it's, but what are we doing right now? It's, yeah yeah amen and and i think that that also connects to this idea which is not something we've talked about but that when when the bible says like you, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much i mean we 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 all love the idea of heroic feats of faith but the ones that are the most impressive are the little ones right like Will you be a person of integrity? Will you do what you say? Like, there's no cheering section for that. Like, you just do it. <laughs> but that's the most impressive kind of faithfulness. Um, or when you're, when you're alone and no one is watching you, yeah, like, right. where are your thoughts at? Yeah. Or at home, when, like, because sometimes I think the perspective is to go more towards the outside, but then I can treat my husband however, or my children however, but then outside I'm like, I don't know. What, mm -hmm. what, you know what I mean? So it's like in the solitude of your heart, at home. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yep. Well, we should probably wrap up there, uh, even though we didn't quite get through this section, but that's where we'll pick up next time. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your son was rejected by men and suffered many things and that he was ultimately killed and after three days rose again because all of our hope is wrapped up in that and I pray that we would boldly embrace this Jesus and his way of life that we would take up our cross and follow him and yeah that you would supply us with the faith that we need to do that well um, and we know that you will. You've promised you will. You've, you've given us your spirit and your word and your church to be resources in that along the way. And um, I just pray that we would seek to be faithful both with blessing and with suffering and that in the end all the glory would go to Christ for what he has done. And we pray this in his name. Amen.